This is the Africa service of Vatican Radio. Welcome to our half-hour daily program for Africa. In this edition today, our bulletin of church news to be followed by Panorama and then our feature of justice and peace. Today we shall close with our sports roundup. My name is Kanyan Tagodfri Kampamba. The spiritual exercises of the Holy Father entered the second day on Tuesday. Breaking away from the traditional way of doing the spiritual exercises, Pope Francis this year invited the cardinals resident in Rome, the heads of dicasteries and the superiors of the Roman Curia to undertake a period of spiritual exercises in a personal way and encouraged them to suspend work activities and gathering themselves in prayer in the first week of Lent. The spiritual exercises will run from the afternoon of Sunday, 10th February, until the afternoon of Friday, 23rd February. During this period, all the Holy Father's engagements, including the general audience on Wednesday, 21st February, have been suspended. Nigeria stands on the brink of anarchy, according to the President of the Catholic Bishops' Conference of Nigeria, Archbishop Lucius Lwejuru Ukoji. He said this on Sunday in his opening address for the first 2024 Plenary Assembly of the Catholic Bishops' Conference of Nigeria, currently underway at the Resource Center at the country's Catholic Secretariat at Durmi in Abuja. Archbishop Ukoji urged the President Bolatinub-led government to be proactive and take urgent steps to secure the lives and property of Nigerians. Delphine Asu reports from Nigeria. The deplorable state of the nation was a core focus of the address of the Catholic Bishops' Conference of Nigeria President, Most Reverend Lucius Ugoji. As government demands a national sacrifice from the struggling masses, one would expect to see a drastic cut in the cost of running government at all levels. On the contrary, it is worrisome to watch top government functionaries living by the sweat and tears of the poor. Government can easily learn from what other nations do to provide adequate security for their citizens. It will be deliberately obvious to state that security in our country will remain a tall dream if there is mass unemployment among our youths. In Abuja, Nigeria, Delphine Asu reporting. The Archbishop of Nyeri Archdiocese in Kenya has lamented the fact that the Kenyan government is unconcerned about the totally unbearable cost of living in the country. Speaking in his homily when he celebrated Holy Mass at Our Lady of Good Council, Kaheti Parish on Sunday, Archbishop Anton Muheria attributed the serious hardships facing Kenyans to the newly introduced taxes. He also blamed the President William Ruto led government for being indifferent to the plight of citizens. We have called our leaders about the tremendous strains they are putting on ordinary Kenyans, but all our calls have fallen on deaf ears, the Archbishop lamented. 
Archbishop Maharia identified new taxes as a factor behind the high cost of living and emphasized the need for dialogue about the levies in view of cushioning Kenyans' continued strain and suffering. The Archbishop, who serves as the chairman of the Commission for Social Communications of the Kenya Conference of Catholic Bishops, clarified the fact that in fortering the government on prioritizing the affordable housing initiative, the Catholic Church aims to safeguard livelihoods of Kenyans and wants a conversation around the matter. Jihadist attacks have resumed in Mozambique's Cabo Delgado province. This wave of violence comes after a period of relative calm and defies the deployment of the country's national defense forces and the Southern African Development Community Development Forces. This new wave of insurgency is also targeted at Christians, as we hear in the following report by Lisa Zengarini. After a period of relative calm following the deployment of the Mozambique Defence Armed Force and the Southern African Development Community Forces, jihadist insurgents in the Mozambican province of Cabo Delgado have resumed their attacks. As confirmed by local sources to the Catholic Charity Aid to the Church in Need, the attacks have also targeted Christian communities, forcing priests, nuns and other church workers to flee to cities already overwhelmed by some one million internally displaced persons. In the latest incidents, the church and offices of Our Lady of Africa in Mazizi Parish in the Catholic Diocese of Pemba were set ablaze following a terrorist attack on February the 12th. Three days earlier, terrorists destroyed houses and churches in several villages. According to local sources, the insurgents for the most part don't discriminate between Muslims and Christians, but there have been attacks on specifically Christian communities, including cases where jihadis separated people by religion and executed Christians. A local priest said that several Catholic missionaries have been displaced by the violence. He explained that church personnel can better protect their community by leaving because people tend to prefer being close to priests and religious to be less exposed to attacks. The Catholic Church has been supporting internally displaced people in Mozambique while also trying to help facilitate a peaceful solution to the conflict. ACN's support has included pastoral assistance and counselling for victims of terrorism, vehicles for missionaries and the construction of community centres. I am Lisa Zengarini. You are tuned to the Daily Africa Service of Vatican Radio. African News Panorama the military in Guinea Conakry has announced that it has dissolved the government it appointed after overthrowing a civilian administration in September 2021. The dissolved government was led by Mr. Bernard Gumu, who had been appointed prime minister by coup leader General Mamadi Dumbuya. A statement read on state television on Monday night said ministers in the dissolved government were ordered to surrender their passports and official vehicles. Their bank accounts, it added, had been frozen. The military has instructed security agencies to close all the country's borders until government ministries have been fully handed over to the military regime. No reason has been given for the dismissal of the government. Police in Kenya say they have rescued 16 children from a ring of human traffickers in the capital, Nairobi. 
the children aged between 2 and 16 years old were found in a rented house on Sunday after a tip from a whistleblower. The traffickers, a Kenyan citizen and a Tanzanian national, have been arrested. Child trafficking is illegal in Kenya and carries a maximum of 10 years in jail on conviction. Botswana and Uganda have announced a partnership to produce a vaccine for foot and mouth disease. Uganda is currently experiencing the outbreak of the disease, but does not have qualified scientists and infrastructure to develop a vaccine suitable to the Ugandan environment. The Botswana Vaccine Institute, which has more experience in animal diseases, has sent its scientists to the country to study the situation. And on Tuesday, they told reporters that they had collected samples from the sick cows for analysis. The vaccine will be jointly developed and is expected to be available in the coming weeks. Rwanda's opposition politician Victoria Ingabire Omohoza has announced that she will challenge President Paul Kagame in the presidential poll scheduled for July 15th this year if the constitutional court lifts the ban that she cannot hold the public office because she was convicted of a crime. And now, our feature, Justice and Peace. Reports from Myanmar, the former Burma, say fighting to remove the military government from power has intensified with the rebels taking control of over 60% of the country. In a desperate move, the military government has ordered a mandatory recruitment of men from the age of 18 to 35 years and of women from the age of 18 to 27 years after losing many soldiers in the battlefield. The war to end military rule started in early 2021 after the state army carried out a coup against a democratically elected government. Military rule in Myanmar started in 1962 and ended in 2011 with the swearing in of a democratically elected government. But it resumed in 2021 when a political party the army supported was defeated in a general election. The military is accused of gross human rights violations, including extrajudicial killings, detentions without trial, and ethnic cleansing. One of the groups that have been subjected to ethnic cleansing are the Muslim Rohingyas whose villages were attacked and burnt by the military on grounds that they are Muslims and anti-government. Many have fled to neighboring countries. When Pope Francis visited Bangladesh in November 2017, he met them and witnessed their suffering and cries. Early this month, he launched a special appeal for global attention to their suffering. Sultana Begum is the head of humanitarian policy at Save the Children's Asia region. She explains more. The Rohingya are a Muslim ethnic minority group from Myanmar. In August 2017, more than 700,000 Rohingya refugees fled violence in Myanmar and sought safety in Bangladesh. They have essentially had their citizenship stripped away. 
They face systematic discrimination and denial of their basic rights for decades, and they're the largest stateless population in the world. So currently, we have one million Rohingya refugees living in Bangladesh's Cox's Bazaar in some of the world's largest camps. And apart from that, Rohingya refugees are also in other Asian countries like Malaysia, Thailand, and Indonesia. What does it mean to be stateless? Rohingya children, wherever they are in Asia, they face discrimination, exclusion, denial of their basic rights. They're not recognized as refugees by most governments in Asia. They don't have legal documents, which means they face poverty. Many children have challenges accessing education. And yeah, they're so vulnerable and living on the margins, violence, child labor, human trafficking, child marriage. They're also often treated as immigrants and they're detained or deported for immigration offenses. Is this the reality for children living in the camps that you mentioned uh, in Cox's Bazaar area in Bangladesh? The situation in Cox's Bazaar, Save the Children have been working there since 2012, providing support to the children and their families in Cox's Bazaar. The Bangladeshi government was very generous in letting in close to one million Rohingya refugees. They're not recognised as refugees and they have been provided refuge and support. But what I would say about the situation in the camps in Bangladesh is that they're getting worse rather than better. There's like half a million children living in these like really terrible squalid conditions on fragile land which is at risk of cyclones, floods, fires, landslides and things like that. And the security situation in the camps is terrible. There's lots of armed groups so the children are really scared and vulnerable to this rising violence. So the situation in the camps isn't really a place for a child to grow up. Children are really showing worrying signs of depression and anxiety. And so they're kind of confined in those camps with very little movement. They're not able to really work. And yes, it's a really, very difficult situation for them. You mentioned uh, mental health illnesses like depression in children. What kind of psychological support is there in place for children, not only who perhaps are growing up in the camps, but also witnessed violence when they fled? That's one of the things that we're very concerned about because, you know, we work with these very vulnerable children and they're showing worrying signs of depression and anxiety. And the challenge is also that they have limited access to formal schools, especially the older children. They're really losing any hope they have for a better future. So we're safe for children. For the younger children, we do have uh, safe spaces where we can support them to play and be children. And we have psychosocial support programs, but are they enough? I would say no. The challenge is also for the older children who don't have access to work, as I said, access to schooling or even any skills, uh, skills development. So it's a really dire future for them. You mentioned the weather. You mentioned um, landslides. And uh, Bangladesh, of course, is subject to monsoon season. So how is Cox's Bazaar and the camps there, how are they equipped for climate disasters, I suppose we could call them? Yeah. Yeah, so Bangladesh, as you mentioned, is probably one of the world's worst disaster-prone areas. So these um, camps have been basically built on what was essentially 
I guess, forest in the past. So what you have is these like flimsy makeshift shelters made from bamboo that are high up on these hills where, you know, when it rains heavily, the shelter's really flimsy so it can be washed away. There's flooding. They're high up on the hills so they can also be washed away. So yeah, it's a really difficult situation. And I suppose this can also lead to health issues. Because the conditions in the camp so congested because of the weather conditions, but also a general lack of access to quality healthcare. I mean, things have got better than when the refugees initially arrived. So children and families are very susceptible to a lot of diseases like dengue. A lot of children are very malnourished because the food situation in the camps isn't great. Illness is a big concern in the camps and the lack of access to healthcare is also a problem. You mentioned other countries where Rohingya refugees have fled to. Obviously, we've spoken about Bangladesh, but could you just mention perhaps some of the perilous journeys that uh, I believe some of these refugees have to undergo in order to reach kind of safety? The Rohingya are really caught in this catch-22 situation. They're not able to return home. In Bangladesh, they're in these awful conditions that I've described, and they're essentially fenced in and confined to refugee camps without any option to work or access formal education opportunities and they can't go home. So, But many people are really desperate. So what happens is they take these dangerous sea journeys, particularly from Bangladesh to countries such as Indonesia and Malaysia. And they're going to these places because they want safety, they want to work, they want to have better lives and some of them have family members in countries like Malaysia. So last year, you had 4,500 desperate Rohingya refugees take these sea journeys, and we saw 569 people either die or be reported missing. So out of these 1,700 Rohingya refugees, almost 70% of them are women and children, landed in Aceh in Indonesia last November. So Imran, a 14-year-old Rohingya refugee boy in Aceh is supported by a safe children's partner. He described how he spent four weeks at sea when the boat he was on ran out of supplies three days before landing in Indonesia. He told us how everyone on the boat was terrified because they were worried about running out of food. So essentially, getting on these boats means people being at the mercy of traffickers and at risk of abuse and exploitation boats with insufficient food and water, and they're often also physically abused at the hand of smugglers. Pope Francis prayed for uh, the Rohingya refugees. How influential do you think his voice can be, but not only his voice, but also the whole of the church, which you know is often present at uh, grassroots levels? I think his voice and the voices of the church is going to be incredibly important The Rohingya crisis is a forgotten crisis. We're seven years in, it's it's protracted, the media attention span is really short, it's moved on to other stories. So having internationally respected figures like Pope Francis, it's really important, one, for the Rohingya to know that the international community hasn't forgotten them, but we really need to continue to shine a spotlight on the situation of the Rohingya because they remain one of the most vulnerable groups in the world. And it's really important to give them a voice 
and to apply pressure on world leaders to give aid to the Rohingya but also to find a political solution. Sultan Begum, the head of humanitarian policy at Save the Children's Asia region, speaking there to Francesca Melo. And that was Justice and Peace for this week. This has been Johnny Baptist Tomosime. This is a sports roundup and welcome to the program. My name is Kenyanta Godfrey Kampamba. At the end of every major tournament, the football managers sit down to look back at how the matches fared. It is at this point that the unruly players and teams reap what they sowed. Nigeria was concerned about what verdict it would get from the continental football managers after the AFCON 23. But the recent Indaba or deliberations of the Confederation of African Football has cleared the West African nation and all super egos players of end wrongdoing during the 2023 Africa Cup of Nations. The investigations of the Confederation of African Football did not find any infractions on the part of Nigeria and the Super Eagles players. Contrastingly, Afghan winners Cote d'Ivoire, Mali and 2021 champions Senegal faced the disciplinary acts from the Confederation of African Football Disciplinary Board that decided to impose sanctions on Mali and Ivory Coast, specifically related to their knockout round clash on February 3rd. Mali faced charges of misconduct due to unsporting behavior by its players towards the match officials. Hamari Traore in particular was found guilty of unsupporting conduct and received a four-match suspension with two matches suspended for one year. Additionally, the Malian Football Federation incurred a fine of States dollars And following the conclusion of the AFCON 2023 and the Asia Cup, the Federation of International Football Associations, FIFA, on Thursday last week published the latest rankings of international teams around the world. Africa Cup of Nations runners-up Super Eagles of Nigeria have moved up by 14 spots to be placed at number 28 in the world in the February FIFA ranking. The upward movement further shoot up the Super Eagles as the third-placed team on the continent behind Morocco and Senegal at 12th and 17th on the world table rankings respectively. But the newly crowned African champions Cote d'Ivoire reaped the rewards of their continental triumph on home soil by being in the 39th place, having moved up by 10 spots. Afghan's second runners-up South Africa climbed 8 points to 58th, with Egypt placed at 36th, Cameroon 51st and Ghana at number 67, dropping down after their early Afghan 2023 exits. The Angolan side that was ousted in the last eight are 93rd, up by 24 ranks, and are the biggest climbers in the latest installment of the global ranking. Back to the African continent, the top 10 teams in Africa are Morocco, Senegal, Nigeria, Egypt, and Ivory Coast. Then there is Tunisia, Algeria, Mali, Cameroon, and South Africa. Meantime, former South African international Dr. Kumalo has expressed confidence in Bafana Bafana's ability to triumph over the Super Eagles in the upcoming 2026 World Cup qualifiers scheduled for June. In a recent media interview, Kumalo pointed to South Africa's performance at the recently concluded 2023 Africa Cup of Nations as a source of optimism for their World Cup qualification aspirations. 
Kumalo argues that Nigeria defeated South Africa on penalties in the AFCON semi-final and he believes the third-place playoff winners deserve support as they turn their attention to the 2026 World Cup qualifiers. South Africa and Nigeria sit second and third respectively after two rounds of matches in Group C. Athletics Kenya has announced the fact that the funeral for Kenya's world marathon record holder Kelvin Kiptum will be held on February 24th. The 24-year-old father of two and his Rwandan coach Jevas Hakizimana were killed in a car accident on Sunday night in the Eldoret area, the heartland of Kenyan distance running. In a statement last week, Athletics Kenya Executive Committee member Barnabas Coril said, Kiptum was a sporting powerhouse whose record-shattering achievements inspired millions around the world. He remains the only human in history to run a marathon under two hours and one minute, Corey said. Kiptum shattered the world marathon record in Chicago in October last year, slicing 34 seconds off the previous fastest time set by his Kenyan rival Eliud Kipchoge. He was the favorite for the marathon at the Paris Olympics where he was expected to go head-to-head with Kipchoge for the first time. Athletics Kenya has also announced the fact that it was cancelling trials for the African Games that had been due to take place this coming Friday and Saturday in honour of the late Kelvin Kiptum. It said the selection process for the team that will represent Kenya at the Games is set to be staged in Ghana's capital Accra next month will now take place at a future date to be specified later. It is sad to note that the athletics fraternity in Kenya is once again mourning after the passing away of Kenyan legend and multiple world record holder Henry Rono. According to a statement from Athletics Kenya, the 1978 Commonwealth Games champion for the men's 3,000 meter step chase and 5,000 meters passed away at the Nairobi South Hospital on Thursday morning after a brief illness. Rono shot to global prominence when he broke four world records in a space of 81 days, which is a feat yet to be replicated to date. And on that note, we come to the end of today's edition of our Sports Roundup. Until next week at the same time, my name is Kenyan Tagodfri Kampamba. This is the Africa service of Vatican Radio and I am Kenyan Tagodfri Kampamba. Praised be Jesus Christ. Laudetu Jesus Christus. Ye kabilo butum